It's the friends in your ears who talk about beers. It's episode 90 of The Cool Room, uh, a very exciting one today. It's uh, early afternoon in uh, Australia. It's late evening on a Friday night in America, and it's exciting because we're going to be having a live chat with Scott Birdwell from Deschutes, which is going to be a fantastic afternoon for everyone who's joining us live, and hopefully everyone who's listening in on the podcast version. Um if it's your first podcast with us, welcome to The Cool Room. We would love it if you followed us on social media so that you can keep up to date with all of the events that we have planned in August. There's some fantastic ones, and all of them come with a tasting pack, which means that while you either listen on the podcast or join us in the Zoom room, you can be experiencing the beers that we're going to be talking about. Uh, today, we have four beers on the agenda from Deschutes. We've got Mirapond. Little Squeezy, Neon Daydream, and Squeezy Rider. Uh, hopefully you've got all of those in your fridge and ready to go. Uh, as we often say, we don't encourage you to scull them all as we, uh, as we talk about the beers. Take the opportunity to savour them, uh, share them with a housemate if you've got a housemate, or make yourselves a tasting paddle. Uh, or if you're listening on the podcast version, we will uh, give you ample opportunity to pause the podcast uh, before we move on to the next beer. So it's going to be pretty obvious when we move from one to another. Uh, that's probably enough from me to kick things off. Travis, my friend with the ceiling windows that currently have daylight streaming through them, not a common occurrence in the cool room. Um, I'll leave you to introduce Scott Birdwell. Uh, thank you, David. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's it's daylight here. We don't normally do this in the day. It feels kind of a bit um, Go, odd. Yes, it's it's. I can't, I'm discombobulated. But that's okay. We'll uh, we will press on and get through this with uh, the tasty beers we're about to to try. Uh, Scott Birdwell, welcome to the call room, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for drinking beer at noon to accommodate uh, me drinking beer at seven p.m. Uh, noon's a perfectly fine time to drink beers here in Australia. Um, yeah. I think most people that have joined us in the Zoom room today are probably the type that would have been drinking beers at noon anyway, whether you were here or not. So I think we're all good. <laughs> yep. No judgment here. <laughs> um, why don't we, 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 let's kick things off. Obviously it's Friday night over there and you've, uh, you've very politely given up your Friday night to come and chat to us here. Can you start by painting us a bit of a picture on, uh, on the brewery and, uh, and what you guys are? Absolutely. I mean, we've got several locations now, but it all kind of began back in 1988. And this is a small bend, Oregon, central Oregon. It's a small logging town. Um, and our, our owner and founder, Gary Fish, um, had a vision to open an English style pub and really to have a place that, that offered both good food and good beer in one spot, a place to hang out with your uh, friends and, and, just, and just chat. And at the time, you know, early eight or late eighties, that really didn't exist. Um, at least it wasn't very common at all, especially good food and good beer in one spot. So that was kind of the vision. Um, you know, again, English inspired, English inspired uh, ales was kind of how we got our start. Um, 
And, you know, it's, it's located right downtown Bend. We still operate there, a, a big a big restaurant there now, and uh, Ten Barrel Brew House, producing one-off beers uh, for all the patrons there and for all the tourists that come to Bend and, and check out the shoots. But in 93, we expanded. Um, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a success. Uh, Bend was kind of changing from like a, you know, a, a logging town that was kind of a dying industry, and it was shifting more towards tourism. Um, lots to do out here, outdoor-wise, outdoor recreation's huge. Um, so the town was growing, and um, we, we put in a production facility, where I'm at right now, uh, in 93, and put in a 50-barrel 50, uh, 50 brew house, where we brewed all of our brands, um, including Mirpond, uh, for quite a while. And then 10 years later, we had to expand again, and we put in, at the same facility, um, a 145-barrel Hootman, so German-made uh, brew house, state-of-the-art at the time. We've had that operating since. So we've kind of kept expanding over the years. Um, and we opened a, a pub in Portland in 2008 as well. So that's kind of our, that was our last big, um, I guess, expansion there. And it's kind of a similar, similar format to the Ben Pub. Uh, it's a, a little bigger system. I think it's a 20 barrel system. Um, and it's in a very nice part of town there, what we call the, call the Pearl District. So um, yeah, so we're mostly all the beer you get from in packages coming from our production facility in Bend, and then we have the two pubs operating and creating one-off beers. What's the population of Bend? I always Bend, Oregon, just seems to me like it's a uh, what we would consider to be a medium country town. Um, how, how many people in Bend? Yeah, we're uh, we're sneaking up on a hundred thousand. Ah, there you go. Uh, a lot bigger than I thought it was. Amazing. Yeah. I don't know what it was in the 80s, but it was uh, pretty tiny back then. And it's grown a lot um, over the last over the last few years. So, yeah, we're getting how, there. How many taps do you have at each venue? Well, the I mean, for on the brewing side, we have two, two gentlemen that run the Portland pub. Um, and then it's just brewing operations here, not restaurant side, right? And then we, in Ben, we have one. Um, but our production facility, you know, it's ranged over the years as our, as our barrelage has fluctuated, but, um, right now we're around 21, 22. Nice. Mm -hmm. And we're, you know, we're doing, uh, well, today's the one exception, but we, we do run 24, seven or twice, 24, six, um, and, uh, day shift, great grape shift, all those things. So there's always someone making, making beer here. Oh, amazing that you, you pretty much run non-stop yeah that that's cool um we're gonna move on shortly and start talking about the actual beer but before we do that uh, can you give us a bit of an insight into into your beer journey where did you start in, within the industry and come from yeah totally i was um you know my story is kind of a classic one it's become a classic story in brewing where you know i started out in a different industry I, I went to school um, and studied business and marketing, all those things, and graduated and, and got some got a job in that field. Um, but I purchased a like a hundred dollar home beer kit uh, <laughs> once I was done with done with college and started making beer. Um, I mean, it was it was barely beer, but it, it had alcohol in it, so we drank it. And uh, I think I think just the <laughs> the pride that you have in the the fact that you made alcohol and beer really, really overcame the fact that the beer is pretty terrible, um, but <laughs> we've but all so that, you know, just the home brewer, right. And doing that and kind of falling in love with the whole process and, you know, buying books and reading more about it and getting better at it. 
talking to talking to brewers, talking to people in the industry, and just just kind of falling for it. Um, and I decided to go back to school. And I remember telling my parents I was going to quit my job and go to a brew school. Uh, and ultimately, they were very supportive at the end. But the day I told them that, <laughs> there was just like there were some jaws kind of hanging down, some big eyes, just like not not a lot of words. And I was like, oh no. no. Um, but it all worked out. But anyway, so went to UC Davis and they have a master brewers program there. It's a six, a six month program. And I, I did that and um, got a chance to intern at the shoots. Um, we have a program where we bring in interns for a couple of weeks, um, have them stay with another brewer, just kind of check out the brewing operations and kind of get their, just get their feet wet. Right. So I, I did that and I was invited back. Um, that, that was in the spring, invited back in the summer for a, a paid internship. Um, did that and I've been here um, almost since that since since that time so wow amazing a lot of the people in the zoom room today are, are home brewers and and started where you started um, and we probably all have aspirations to to go and do what you did so it's awesome to hear those those sorts of stories on uh, on the people that make it from the home brewing to the uh, professional side of things um, not sure I'm ever going to get there. I don't know, maybe one day. Um, everyone in the Zoom room has probably opened up the mirror pond already. Um, for those that listen to the podcast afterwards that brought the pack, um, now's a good good time to open it. We are going to kick off tasting this. I probably opened mine a bit too early, but it's delicious. Um, start by telling us a little bit about the story of the beer, um, the history, and how did, how did this one come about? Yeah, so this, I mean, this used to be our biggest selling beer. Um, and no surprise, recently, last couple of years, um, fresh squeezed IPA, it's always an IPA, right? Uh, so passed it in sales, but uh, the, the Mirror Pond was the biggest seller for a number of years. I'm not quite sure how many, but for a lot. And it was at the time when it came out, you know, again, we were that English inspired pub. Um, so it, it kind of has, it's got an English yeast in it. Um, it's got, it's got American hops, um, but it's, it's very balanced as well. So it has the, the caramel malt and stuff like that. So um, the goal was to, at the time, to kind of like um, not copy Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, but to have something similar to it, but have our own, have our own twist on it. Um, so the, time, the brewmaster at the time, John Harris and, and the owner, Gary Fish, worked on this recipe and developed Mirror Pond, uh, I think in the early 90s. I could be wrong on that. But anyway, pretty early on. Um, and it had, it took off, had great success and, um, has been one of our, our biggest sellers for, for a number of years. Has the recipe stayed the same right the way through, or has it had to be tweaked over time as things are available, not available, or tastes have changed a bit? Yeah. I mean, recipes always are being refined and tweaked and improved. Right. But the, the core of the core of the beer hasn't, hasn't changed much over the years. I would say it's still a hundred percent cascade hop beer. Um, it's still got the same crystal malt that it had when it was designed. Um, the, the goal is still to have a balanced pale ale that features both, you know, caramel malts and, 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 you know, cascade hop character. Um, and, you know, you kind of see the, the pale ales nowadays, at least in the States, I can't speak for Australia, but um, they're kind of becoming more hop focused mm. um, and less on the malt. So in that regard, it's definitely stayed very similar to, to its roots. Yeah. But there's, yeah, we're, we're always moving around hops in the brew house or the cellar, trying to figure out the best place to get the cascades to express the best way possible. But yeah, I'd say more or less it stayed the same. 
Are there any others of the of the range that have stayed right the way through from the beginning, you know, to the current day, or has the core range changed a fair bit over that time? Yeah, I mean, I'd say another good example is our obsidian stout, um, which we actually we never even flavor matched that one onto our big brew house, so it's still brewed at our our first expansion, our fifty barrel brew house, um, and really the the occasional hop switch here or there it's really kind of the same exact beer since that was designed so that one's kind of cool and so it's, it's a very that that at jv northwest is the company that, that's a 50 barrel it's a very um non-automated and like uh you know very manual gravity fed brew house so the brewers like getting over there and uh and and just moving the word around and, and brewing brewing stout over there so that that one's still there uh after all these years we've um we've had a few discussions of lighting the cool room about about cans versus bottles and that that type of thing. Um, everything that's in the pack that we've got is in cans. Do you guys do anything in a bottle? Oh yeah, well, we got a big bottling line. Um, we do a lot of our products in bottles. Um, as you know, like the trend right now is to go go to cans. Um, and we we realized that a few years ago um, and had to figure out how to put a canning line in this place. Uh, we were at the time we didn't really have any any room for a canning line, but we ended up um, ripping out our hop cooler uh, and oh, wow. moving that down, moving that down to, to another piece of the property, and then using that space to tuck in a, a can line. So we are we are canning, we are bottling, we're racking, we're doing all those things. It, it's I think I don't know what it's like in the U.S., but over here, uh, bottling and canning at the same time is something that's almost ceased to exist i think um you know majority of our craft breweries here in australia have gone over to cans um obviously you mentioned sarah nevada earlier who we had on the podcast last year you know they're still all bottles um apart from a few few cans um it's an interesting take on things when you have to switch things out to put in a canning line i'm sure um how how big's the property you, you said you moved your your hop cooler to another section of the property you know, are we talking 10 meters up up the building or are we talking 50 yeah so we've got uh, i don't have like specific numbers for you but we have a uh, pretty big piece of land definitely a few acres and we have a big warehouse down below our our facility where we brew and where we package all the beer so one kind of nuance to our brewery is that once you get the beer into a bottle or can or keg whatever it is um you got to put it in a truck and drive it like 0.15 miles to the warehouse <laughs> down below, unload it, and then you know get get your new glass or your new cans from down there, bring those up the hill. So it's a little quirky, but it's just like it, it was hard to see the growth that was going to happen back in you know whatever year 94, 95. Um, and if, if you had that, if you had known that you would be this size back then, you would have done things maybe a little differently. But uh, it, it it all works here. We, we've all made it work. That's awesome. Um, you're, you're right on the, the flavors that the hop character really comes out of it. I'm wondering as well, uh, since we're all drinking it, David, what are you, what are you tasting on this one? Well, yeah, I guess for me, as, as much as the hops are there, and they, they certainly are, I guess the thing that stands out about it is the fact that we've got those malts and yeast flavors coming through. That's probably what differentiates it for, for people who are newer craft beer drinkers. Uh, and who are used to particularly those Australian and I guess US style pale ales and, and IPAs, as Scott was saying, where you just expect, you know, it to be hops from start to finish. This has a much sort of more smooth richness to it that, that comes from 
those ingredients as well, I guess, Scott, does that sound about right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you have, if you have little squeezy open next to you as well, um, if you bounce back between the two beers, you can really notice how, how the malt contributes to the, to the flavor of the beer, right? So a little squeezy, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but no, no, no. That's a, you're segueing beautifully, brother. That's exactly where. We're yeah, going. that's that's what you like, and I just opened my can because I'm going to try that. So yeah, yeah, do that and go back and forth because it really does show you what what the malt brings to a beer, and I that's kind of why I've always loved beer ponds. I I do like those hoppy hop forward beers that just have that really just offer you different hop aromatics. But um, I I'll say I'm old enough maybe to uh, enjoy a beer that has malt and hops in it. So. Um, so the beer pond definitely gives that caramel note to it along with the, you know, I can get grassy off it, floral, floral cascades, yeah. um, sometimes a little citrus off there and those all kind of play together pretty well. Um, the, uh, the little squeezy I go over here, it's just, it's just so juicy and tropical. Um, and that's just kind of like, it's like drinking juice. Um, it's just a, a way different experience. Um, different, you know, not a bad, bad or good word. It's just, just different. Um, so I, I really enjoy both of the beers for, for different reasons, but if you go back and forth, you get those big tropical notes off the little squeezy and the mirror pond seems more, it's more balanced. Um, at least to me, it does. I think you really get that bit yeah. when you go back to the mirror pond after the little squeezy. If you've had a couple of sips of the of the little squeezy, sort of cleanse your palate with that and then go back the other way, you really do get those exact those sort of caramel, not quite toffee, but it will, but on the road to toffee sort of notes coming out of it. And yeah, they're different, they're different yeast strains too, right? So I mean, I, I think the the yeast that we use in mirror pond is a, a bit more expressive, um, some more esters in there and whatnot, more fruity esters and stuff like that. So those kind of come through, um, whereas a little squeezy is just kind of structured to really, really showcase the hops. When we're talking esters, that's sort of a word that we use in the industry and stuff a bit, but for sort of newer uh, craft beer drinkers, what are we talking about when we're talking about esters? I mean, those could be, there's, you know, they're organic compounds. They could be all kinds of things, um, all kinds of fruity, uh, different, different fruity flavors. Usually it's kind of what I think of as esters, um, but the yeast will throw those up for you. Um, and again, that's very, that's very yeast strain dependent. So, um, I think the yeast we use in the little squeezy is a little cleaner. Uh, and again, that was the intent to, to let, let more of the hops shine versus, you know, even smelling, smelling the, uh, yeast. So for the, uh, for our home brewer listeners in the room and on the podcast, do you know off the top of your head, the yeast in both of these? Yeah, we, uh, I mean, so mirror pond again, haven't changed this since it came out, but that's, that's the ringwood strain, um, 1187, um, and little squeezy, uh, it's, it's 001. So it's, it's white, white labs, 001. It's kind of a, it's a been a popular pick over the years for, uh, for, for hoppy beers. Uh, it definitely works well, uh, throws a little sulfur initially. Um, but then once the beer gets a little age on it, that sulfur dies down and all the hop aromatics kind of pop out. So that's, that's been a good one for us. Knowing the people that come into our Zoom room and the people that listen to the podcast, I'm probably guessing, and you guys can all give me a nod, that you've both got open the mirror pond and the little juicy now. Sorry, little squeezy now. Um, we, we have Mr. Warren Wu in the room with us on a Saturday afternoon. Um, Warren, have you opened your beers? Sorry, Travis, I've... 
I've just hit a technical difficulty. That's okay. We, is it, is it the technical difficulty your fingers aren't I, working and you can't open the cans? or yeah, something like that. <laughs> Thanks, David. Yeah, That's okay. I just think it's worth, you know. I'm just really just trying to give you a little bit of cover while you are no, while you get the while, while I switch to a different internet network. Sure. Is that what you know. is that what you're going to do? Should we? Um... Uh, no, that's what I've just done. So I think yeah. we're good. I think we're um, good. Um, yeah. Hello. Do you have your beers with you? Yes. I do. Give us a bit of a uh, give us a bit of a take on what you're tasting in the mirror pond. Um, yeah, and then we will move over to uh, you taking us taking reins on the uh, the little squeezy. That sounds like a fantastic idea. I really, I'm really fascinated by the fact that the mirror pond is just cascade, and and you just get that pure expression of that. And it's not, it's it's not completely dominant because there's so many different little bits and pieces going on. But it's, it, I think it sits there as a nice complement, like a a really interesting. Uh, pale, yeah, kind of pure pale ale and then with the yeah the little squeezy is just is just yeah fruit juice it's it's amazing in that respect it's it's just really approachable and really digestible um scott what are the challenges when you're when you're trying to balance out the hop flavors in in uh, a product like little squeezy i know i know consistency is important when you're at a commercial level um, yeah, that consistency with little squeezing, try to do that with, with, uh, five different hops, whereas a uh, cascade might change a little bit over time, but it seems a lot easier with something like mirror pond. Yeah. I mean, you having one hop definitely has advantages, right? Like it makes your hop cooler bigger because you only have one hop in there. Um, and it's, it's easy to, uh, to know how, how are you going to brew the beer and stuff like that. But uh, I will say if the, if you, if you select, you know, a poor lot of cascade, or if you get a bad, a bad run of it, then you don't have a lot of outs to, to change that, to uh, make sure the beer tastes right. So um, we, we do a lot of, a lot of research on that, do a lot of work um, to, to kind of vet all the hop lots that we get to make sure that they're, that they're the ones we want, that, that they taste, that they, they smell and, and perform correctly. Um, but that, I think the yeah, it's, it's nice having one hop because it's easy to easy to brew it. It's easy to gather the hops, you know, for the brewer. Um, with a little squeezy, you know, it's there's I think there's five different hops in there. One's a bittering hop, so we'll say four are kind of you know, giving you the aromatics. Um, it's it you know it's like you want to somehow vet the quality of each of those different hops every time the lot changes, because you know, even the same hop is gonna have some variance in it. So as you get, as you go through different lots and a lot being like from a different farm or, or something like that, or a different year, um, you want to make sure that the hop is performing correctly. And so ideally you could have, you could do like, we, we do hop teas here, we soak the, the, the hops, um, grind them up, soak them in water and just smell that, that mixture to see, to get some insight into how the hop, the hop performs. Um, so ideally you'd be able to like do that every time you had a change in a change in the hops and like restructure the ratio of, of all these different hops in the beer to make it the best as possible. But the reality of that is, is it's pretty hard to pull off. So I guess the, I guess the challenge is always making sure the best, the best hop is showcased, um, when you have four different ones to work with. Mm. Yep. Yep. Um, mugs is got a great question but i might come back to that and he's just in the zoom room and 
Uh, luckily enough for everyone in the Zoom room, they can throw up questions and we'll ask them live. Um, but before that, I just wanted to stay on the idea of hops. Uh, when you're sourcing hops, is it mainly uh, North American hops that you guys are sourcing? Are you got one of these evil evil breweries which are stealing Southern Hemisphere, taking out glorious Southern Hemisphere hops? I would love to come down there and take all your hops. Um, <laughs> we, we don't do that, unfortunately. We probably need to do some more trips down there to do that exact thing. But, you know, being in Oregon, we're pretty lucky because we have a lot of good hops very close. So the big ones you probably know are Yakima Valley in Washington, uh, Willamette Valley in Oregon. <laughs> Just over the hill, I can see right now, it's only a few hour drive to some to a lot of different hop fields. It's a little further up to Yakima, Washington, but we get a lot of our hops, you know, from those regions. So I would love to incorporate some more um, Southern Hemisphere hops into our, into our products. So maybe, maybe next year uh, I'll have changed my answer on that question, but for now we are not coming down there and taking all your hops. Awesome. <laughs> Good to hear. Um, is it a regular, do you regularly buy from different farms? Um, is, is it more of a, do you look, or, or is it more of a case where you just look at the open market and see what's available? Do you, is, is that the shoot thing that you, you concentrate on trying to find more local products? Yeah, no, we definitely, we definitely contract hops out for, for quite a ways um, just because of how much production that we do. Um, and just having a known source is very important. Right. And you, we can buy in pretty big quantities. So we do spend a lot of time traveling up, um, to these different hop farms and uh, what we call hop selection and just kind of, you know, we'll be presented with several different lots of say Citra or wherever the hop is, Cascade, Mosaic, doesn't matter. Um, but the, the hop brokers will, will give us all these different lots to taste, or I shouldn't say taste, I should say rub and smell and just kind of evaluate. Um, and then we'll pick the ones that we want to bring into the brewery. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get big quantities of those, of those hops if possible. So we want that stability it helps with the beer consistency. Um, we don't want to rely on the spot market to, you know, hopefully find the hop that we need and have to make a bunch of adjustments if we can't find it. Cool. Can, can I perhaps just jump in and ask, is that sort of one of your things that makes your role as manager of brewing operations different to that of a brewer? Is it sort of your role to sort of have your eye on the, on the big scale of things like that? Yeah. So we, I mean, it's kind of a group effort for sure. Um, I I'm involved in that. Um, we look to involve other people in that as well. Um, definitely some brewers sometimes. Uh, we have a sensory sensory analyst who we, who's, who's very good at uh, picking out nuances in the hops. So, so she goes every year. Um, we have a raw materials manager who, I was also very skilled at that. So it's a team effort for sure. We try to rotate other brewers in to kind of get an experience at that. But we have found that getting consistency in that group that goes can help with um, selecting the best hops. So how many of you are there actually working on the brewing side of the operations? I mean, most of the breweries that we talk to in Australia, you know, particularly when they're craft breweries, you know, have a much smaller number of people, you know, working there that's you know the idea of having sensory analysts and other ones is starting to sound like you've got a you know a big phalanx of people you know in the in the building yeah i mean i think if we're talking about like brewing packaging um warehouse everything um i think we're over 300 or so um and that you know that includes that includes like uh staff at the pubs and stuff like that too so 
we're, we're, you know, we're definitely a mid-sized company, but yeah. uh, the, like I said before, the brewing team is around, around 21 and we've got a, a great QA team. Um, the packaging team, I, I'm not sure their numbers, but I think they're bigger than, than brewing actually. Um, so it's a, uh, it takes a lot of work, a lot of collaboration, a lot of teamwork. Um, I might throw in, uh, Muggs's question now. So there's there's a couple of different features about little little squeezy which I'm I'm particularly interested in. But one of them is yeah the live live yeast. Well, so basically can conditioned, and we, we I think as home brewers we know we understand bottle conditioning. But can you give us a little insight into the the process of of can conditioning or live yeast conditioning of the, of a beer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've done a lot of work on this and our, you know, we have a full, um, sensory panel, uh, who almost every day come in, not weekends, but almost every day come in and taste beer, uh, and just, just to check in on the product and make sure it, it's true, true to brand. Um, and so we've done a lot of work with oxidation. Um, as you, as you all know, in this group, I'm sure beer does not, mm. not typically age well, unless it's like a big barrel aged beer. Um, so we want to protect the beer as best we can out in the market. It's, it's going to be out there and it's going to be subjected to all kinds of conditions, right? So, um, bottle conditioning or can conditioning, same thing, adding some live yeast to the, to the product before it's packaged. Um, we've, we've seen in, you know, in our panel that this does help bring down, uh, you know, that acceleration of, of how it ages. So it, it helps it age more gracefully. Um, and we, you know, we'll scale, in sensory, we'll scale how much oxidation in a, uh, a brand has at different different intervals. So fresh should be zero, obviously, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, out to whatever the whatever the code date is for that for that product. Uh, it definitely varies by product. Um, and we've done some studies a while back where we've you know we, we've conditioned some of the beer and not the the other part of the beer. And the ones that's conditioned is is um, proven to just taste better longer. So. Um, really it's for, it's for the consumer. It's to, it's to protect the beer is the main, the main goal there. Um, coming back to something you mentioned before that, the, that sometimes there's a sulfur, like there's, there's a sulfur, um, byproduct of the yeast, uh, in, in the little squeezy. Does that mean you've, you've kind of rested the beer before the canning process just to let that this is such a geeky bullshit question but do you let that that blow off before you and and kind of oxidize a little bit before you then can it is that a thing no because we have i mean you know the, the beer fresh from the brewery like for for me speaking for myself here but a little squeezy um you know can throw some of those sulfur notes but Nobody except for us at the brewery is drinking the beer at day one. Right. Like it's not, it's not going to be in a grocery store at day one ever. So it, it, there's, there's a baked in time where it has to, where it's maturing anyway, because it's going down to a warehouse, then it's going to a distributor, then it's going to the retailer and then someone's got to buy it. Then they got to drink it. So that, that time gap works to our advantage for some of these, these beers that have these different yeast strains that might throw, little bit of sulfur um and so it's not, not only it hasn't really been a problem too much um it just it just tastes when it's, when it's very fresh you can definitely get it and then by the time you get it in the market it's dissipated yeah. um the other feature of this beer which i find quite interesting i want to talk to you about um there's a little red there's a little red uh logo on the side crafted to remove gluten mm -hmm. um i'm not 100 sure if i could taste the difference 
either way but but what what goes into that process what what do you do that 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 reduces the gluten in in a it's an enzymatic it's enzymatic process right so you can break that gluten down to other substances that that don't impact those who have a gluten intolerance okay and so that's a it's just a purely an enzymatic addition that we make um you know to to the wort on the way of the fermenter uh, that breaks that down and we'll and we'll test extensively for for that content to make sure before it's released or, or packaged that it actually is below the number we're saying that it's, it should be below so that's a very it's a very carefully carefully watched process there uh, and that's I'm pretty gonna... that's a pretty common yeah it's a pretty common process for for breweries that offer gluten-free products or gluten reduced, you know, it's not, it's not a zero gluten product. It's a gluten reduced as it says. Yep. Um, but it depends on if you're, you know, if you're a celiac, true celiac, or if you're not, um, you know, this, this kind of falls in that realm of like, well, if you're not a true celiac, but you react to gluten, this beer is going to be just fine for you. If you're a cool. true celiac, then you know, not so much, but. Before. So I'm good. I'm half checking in with the guys. We might take a break in the moment, in a moment, just so we can we can kind of get our next beers, so on and so forth. There's a note here. Apparently, I'm supposed to throw to Ryan regarding basketball questions. Scott, <laughs> you wouldn't happen to be a you wouldn't be have happen to be a Trailblazers fan, would you? Well, so the problem is I'm a Lakers fan, which um, oh. you know, those are they're great. Those are great rivals. Um, you, you'd be you'd be kind of happy because apparently Dane has interested in going to the like. Well, every every added, every player is interested in going to the Lakers, but apparently Dane is interested in going to the Lakers. So there's your little, nice. um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so am I throwing to Ryan? With throw, the- throw to Ryan. So the, the backstory for everyone who wasn't on the email chain over the last month or so, setting this event up. Um, First of all, Ryan LaRacy, who will be no uh, no stranger to podcast listeners, who's helped us organise uh, other great events and also gets a mention in the Valhalla episode that we put out this week. I'm not going to tell you what Scott from Valhalla had to say about Ryan. You'll need to listen to the episode to find that out. Uh, when we were going through the beery lineup, uh, people will find the Rip City beer in the uh, in the lineup, and I'd originally included that in the lineup, uh, and we knocked that off because it was basketball related. And then Ryan got a bit upset that we couldn't talk basketball, so we've included a special little slot here before we have our interval where Ryan gets to ask a couple of basketball questions. Oh, good God! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that uh, little clickbait plug there as well. Um, That's what I'm here for. As <laughs> um, look, as not purely basketball centric. I, I was more um, interested. I'm, I'm a part time basketball fan, NBA fan. Um, I um, was more interested to, to hear a bit more how that, that came about. I, I like a, a, a non traditional beer collab, one that supports local teams and things like that. So, is there a bit of history with the the Rip City um, beer? Yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, I, I guess the, um, so the term Rip City was, I guess, coined by the Blazers' uh, first ever announcer, like back in the, I don't know, 70s, mm-hmm. whenever it was. Um, and, and of course, it was against the Lakers, and, and they hit, uh, there is before they had the three-point field goal. So there was just, just two-pointers everywhere, right? I guess somebody shot this, like, ill-advised, long shot against the Lakers, made it, the Blazers won. 
to beat the vaunted Lakers. Um, and he said, rip city, baby. And that was like the catchphrase that it became a catchphrase essentially. Um, and so that was kind of where the, where the name came from. Um, and really, I think the, the goal is like, if you're, if you're watching a, a sporting event, like you're probably gonna be drinking a, a light, a lighter beer because you, you know, it's going to be a three hour, four hours football, American football, uh, event. And you want to have more than one beer. So if you're drinking, uh, a Russian Imperial stout, you won't, you won't catch second <laughs> half of the game. So the point is to have like a very light lager, um, type beer and the time with the three point, the whole three point thing, it's, you know, it's got, uh, three different malts and three different hops to kind of just play off of that, just to riff off of that. Um, I'm not quite sure how the exact partnership was formed, but, but that was the, that was the play on the beer. It's only 4.8% alcohol. So real, real crushable 20 IBUs. Um, it's got a little crystal hop in it, lemon drops, in it, lemon drop hops in it. Um, and then Pilsner malt, uh, unmalted wheat and some flaked rice. So just, just a real light, enjoyable, um, you know, kind of a little bready, little floral, uh, just, just a big crusher. <clears throat> yeah, excellent. Well, I was, uh, the next one was definitely more basketball and also sort of sponsorship related. So one thing I do remember, I was, I was big into basketball around about maybe 10 years ago um, for a few years. And in 2013, the Rose Garden changed to the Motor Center and it was a bit of a, wasn't well received within within Portland. Um, had, they had a ten year contract, so in twenty twenty three, that naming rights is up again. Have you thought about maybe Deschutes <laughs> uh, Hot Garden or something like that? Could that be on the cards? Could you push that with management? Yeah, I could. Uh, they're not here right now, um, <laughs> but maybe I'll maybe I'll check in later on that. Yeah. <laughs> or, or we can just do one of our clickbait things where we just say, you know, find out which, you know, which major sporting organization Scott thinks should be sponsored by the shoots. Um, David, yeah. I feel like we've just had a scoop. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. That's totally a scoop. That's a what? A scoop. Like when, when a journalist gets a, a big story, you know, a scoop. Oh, sorry, scoop. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, no, sorry, Cam, for that today. Is, was that but, the uh, accent? Was that the... Yeah, I, I, I think we're, we're, we're likely to be able to sponsor a uh, college football bowl game. It, there's so yeah. many bowl games in uh, American college football. Um, but anyway, that's a, I, I like that question. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. I, I'm in. Keeping on with the sponsorship, um, I've, I noticed you guys sponsor a couple of baseball teams as well. So you've got Hillsborough Hops in the minor league, and you've also got the, uh, the Portland Pickles. In, uh, in the West Coast League. If you guys were to do a beer with those guys, what would you brew? Um, for Pickle. Um, mm. Yeah. Man, sour. Um, yeah, pickle sour. A dill beer? Mind. A pickle dill beer? Would anybody buy it though? I mean. No, probably not. I would. Well, I would buy it. There's been a couple of pickle beers of late in would, the Southern Hemisphere, so it could work. Buy yeah, it, eat it with the brisket I'm smoking. Okay, well, you, you send me some sales data from those pickle beers, and then we can talk about that. <laughs> All right, you're on. Um, on that, I think we, uh, we're going to take a quick breather. We're going to get uh, our next run of beers. It is whatever time it is over here, 12.52, whatever time it is in Oregon. Um, maybe we uh, have an eight-minute, seven, eight-minute breather. 
we're going to come back with the Neon Daydream and then the Squeezy Rider. And post the recording for those in the Zoom room, uh, given Ryan's basketball questions, I think we'll probably all crack open the Rip City and uh, hook into that. So if you're in the Zoom room or join us in the Zoom room, you get to sit around afterwards and drink a few beers and chat the day away. Um, I almost said chat the night away then because we're used to doing this at night time, but um, for us it's daytime. So We're back in the cool room. It's episode 90. Uh, we're very honoured this afternoon, uh, Australian time to be being joined by Scott Birdwell from Deschutes. We're moving on now to... The Neon Daydream, uh, hopefully you've got that in your glass, whether you're in the Zoom room or whether you're joining us on the podcast. Scott, it's, we're going to start to digress from our notes here a little bit because we spoke a bit more about malt when we were talking about the uh, earlier beers, the Mirror Pond, than I'd imagined. But give us a bit of an idea about both hops and malts in this beer and what flavours we should be experiencing. Yeah, so Neon, uh, Easy Pale Ale. Um, low alcohol beer, um, you know, big session beer. The, you know, if you have a little squeezy, that one, as I mentioned before, is really, you know, 90% about the hops. And there's a little bit of Munich in there, a little bit of C15, but again, it's showcasing the hops. This beer is, I'd say, 100% about the hops. Uh, I'm making those numbers up, of course, but the point is, is that really the goal is to have the malt totally stand down and have those hops have those hops pop. Um, I, you know, I get this beer is, uh, on, I get kind of like a mango tropical, like orange or like uh, lemon zest character to it. Um, and it just fades to a, to a very, very, uh, light, very light, bitter finish. Um, I think what's tough about these beers is getting them to be, uh, both so light bodied, but highly drinkable. Um, and you know, so the, the malt bill is structured to help out with that. Um, you know, there is some unmalted wheat in there, um, which is, you know, a pretty high protein, high protein malt to help out, you know, with that haze. Um, we also watch very closely, like, you know, how far is the beer attenuating during fermentation? Um, make sure it doesn't go too far, leave a little bit of body in there to kind of just give some semblance of, of sweetness to it. Um, uh, but yeah, it's uh, just a it's a real crushable tropical. Again, they're a juicy, uh, light light ale. I guess in Australia we're pretty used to sort of hazies now when they first come into the market, sort of being at the higher end of alcohol. We don't have a huge number of hazies at this sort of drinkable, you know, sessionable level of alcohol. Um, how is the style over in the US? Is it a similar sort of thing? Do most people aim the hazies sort of a bit further up, or is it you know far more beers like this? it's all over the board. I mean, the, the hazy style is, I guess the same out where you are, but it's taken over. Um, they keep adding different hazy, uh, beer categories to all the competitions. Uh, I do a little bit of judging kind of getting into that, uh, recently, but, um, yeah, there's, there's a category for Imperial hazy for regular hazy for low, low alcohol hazy, you, you know, you name it, there's, there's a hazy style for it. So I, I would say that, yes, um, we see the Imperials as well. Um, I think we're working on one right now, actually, but um, it's all it's all over the board, all over the spectrum. What's the one hazy style in your judging realm where you've looked at it and gone, okay, that's enough? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm kind of a little bit more old school, so 
I, I'm always like, well, you know, why are we doing this anyway? Uh, I do like, I do like hazy beers, but I, I do, I'm just always curious, uh, you know, what is it about the haze that the consumer, consumer loves so much? Uh, you had the original hazy and like the Hefeweizens, right? Those, the, they're, they're hazy wheat beers. Um, and it's just, it's just kind of funny how it's really taken off, but I don't know. I mean, do we really need a double hazy IPA? Really? I mean, I guess the answer is uh, if you're in business of making beer and people are saying, yes, I want to, I want to drink those. Then, and the answer to my question is, is yes. Right. I guess this, this sort of ties in with the question that we ask so, so regularly, I think just in pubs in Australia, but certainly on the call room about, you know, is the hazy train about to finish or do you just see this style as powering ahead? We keep on wondering what the next style will be, but this seems to be the one that's dominated the market for longer than we'd thought when it first arrived. Yeah. I think the, I think the hazy is um, here to stay for, for quite a while. And I think part of that reason is, you know, it's a lot more because it's lower bitterness in most cases, they're a lot more approachable. Um, you know, I feel like some of the, some of the IPAs were kind of getting to a point where, you know, they, they were pretty intense. Right. And so if you were, if you were a longtime beer drinker, you worked up to that, then you know, no problem. I can handle a double IPA with no problem. But if you weren't, um, that bitterness was kind of a, I guess, a barrier to getting into some of these beers. Um, whereas the hazies traditionally have been much lower IBUs and more approachable in that manner. So just just softer fruit, lower bitterness, um, real tropical kind of juice-like, kind of like little squeezy and neon have been. Um, I think that's that has a, a broader appeal than does say you know a big West Coast IPA. Um, people typing in the in the chat as we're here, and certainly for me, it's coming across is is the oat cream, the oat flavors in there. Do you want to talk a little bit about sort of you know how you get those? you know, how you treat that malt and how that sort of contributes into what people are tasting at the moment? Yeah, the, the oats. So um, again, you know, to make a hazy beer, really it's about um, increasing the protein content is, is one big part of that equation, um, which helps throw the haze. So if you use, if you use malts, adjuncts that are higher in protein, um, and then you, you work less hard to filter it out, <laughs> then you get a hazy beer. So that's that's one of the reasons why those why those malts are in there is to increase that protein. So so wheat malts, uh, oats, you know, flake barley's, raw barley certainly, um, all these can contribute a bunch of proteins and throw a bunch of haze for you. Um, you can you can obviously mess with your how much um, we, call, we call it whirl flock here, but basically you know kettle coagulant you use uh, during the boiling process to kind of help minimize upfront clarification and then depending on the brewery and, and how you filter your beers, you can, you can fine tune that to allow more haze to get through. And sort of contributes a bit of sweetness and almost a little bit of yeah. coating of the tongue sort of there at the end. Yeah. And these are also, you know, these, these kind of malts are also less fermentable. So they, they produce a less fermentable wort. And so you have a little bit more residual sugar hanging out um, that makes it to the final product, uh, which can provide a little balance to the beer as well. And do you reckon, I mean, we're sort of, we've been drinking our way through a, a juicy ale and a pale ale. Here we have a, a hazy ale. We're going to move on to a, to a West Coast. In terms of consumers, do you reckon they approach those beers with something particular in their mind when they see those words? Or 
or reversely for you guys, is it just about making the beer you want to make and then finding a name for it at the end that kind of describes it? Is it the beer that's more important than the, than the style name? Yeah. I mean, I think for, I think for us it is, I mean, I think that's changed. I think, um, you know, earlier on in our, our history, again, being the English inspired uh, pub, the, the styles coming from, from Europe were, were very important and they still are, you know, to a degree, absolutely. Um, but I think we were more reluctant to deviate from those styles. And, and now it's kind of more, well, the gates have opened a little bit because that's what the market's doing. It's, it's not, you know, we aren't, we aren't sticking to Amber's Porter's stouts, um, you know, a mild ale, brown ale, some of these beers I love, but you can't, you can't find them anymore. Right. So I think those, those traditional styles while still important are still around are definitely not dictating what people are doing anymore. And they're kind of doing more experimentation. Um, you know, squeezy rider, um, West coast, West coast style IPA, but it's got the nuance in that it's, it's got a much lower bitterness level than a traditional West coast IPA might have. Um, you know, these, to me, like a West coast IPA is going to be really, really assertive, really bitter, um, and, and very hoppy, you know, very, very piney, perhaps resinous, tropical, those kind of things. Um, and it's going to have that, that big, like palate cleansing bitterness to it. Um, whereas, you know, that's, I kind of feel like that, that, that whole style came about when, you know, when craft beer was trying to be as far apart as possible from domestic light lager. And so, yeah. and so it was right. So you have a domestic light lager, low bitterness, low flavor, low everything. And you have this like tongue scraping aggressive west coast ipa and that's about as far apart as they can get um but squeezy rider is you know the the bitterness has been brought down a little bit i kind of like you know not following that style to a t um but but playing more in the in the whole ipa category and, and bringing down the bitterness kind of like a hazy but also having some of those those big aromatics like a west coast ipa should in a minute, we might get people to open them up again, just so we can have the two beers along alongside each other, and that might provide a bit of a contrast as well. Um, before we get onto that bit, though, I guess you know a question that we've often asked: perhaps five or six years ago, in Australia, it was relatively rare for breweries to have their own tap rooms uh, or venues. Uh, in the US, I think that's been a bit of a trend for a lot longer. How much time do you get to spend down there, and is it? important for you and the brewers and the and the team to get that interaction with the punters as we would say in Australia to sort of hear feedback hear about styles that they either want to have or you know reflections on the beers along the way and does that does that change how you do things yeah definitely I mean we um I can speak to like pre-COVID stuff right uh, uh. but we've you know we've done a lot of like we'll do a lot of um events uh, everything you know very small from like just meet, you know, meet the brewer in our tasting rooms so just a brewer hanging out walking around talking to folks in the tasting room as they drink beers and, and giving more intel on the beers um to like major events where we send out several brewers um marketing sales staff etc to to a city that we're in that we're distributing to and um take over an entire city block and have a big event have a big party and just pour beers and stuff like that so um, you know, we, we know that's very important for our company to interact with the consumer, um, as much as possible and, and kind of be there. Um, and I think that, I think that the, our pubs, you know, in Portland and, and Bend are definitely good, 
uh, you know, good proving grounds for, um, for market research, right? Like for, for, you know, for different beer styles, different, different uh, riffs on, on stuff like that. So we'll, we'll definitely send beers to, um, or definitely solicit feedback at those locations um, and get a sense from our, our core customers, you know, how, how is this new product tasting? Do you like this? Should we keep making this, et cetera? And it's just really cool, like being on the flip side of it to go to a brewery and be in that, in that tap room environment, be in that, be in that bar and, and, oh yeah, there's, there's a brew over there. Why? Well, I got some questions for you. So, right. Just to hang out and, and just, just interact and, and, and shoot the breeze. So I think that's really important. I mean, a lot of people who come to Bend um, on vacation, you know, their first experience with the shoots uh, might possibly be at the pub. And so everything from like, you know, how, how was the service? How was the food? How was the beer? Uh, and if you can layer into that, like meeting a brewer, um, I think that just kind of makes them potentially fans for life, you know? Do you ever like put on a false nose and glasses and stuff and go to other breweries, tap rooms and, you know, just pretend to be a general punter and ask difficult questions of the brewers at some other joint? <laughs> uh, no, but I will tomorrow, given that suggestion. <laughs> That's a great idea. Um, no, I, I, I don't, but I, I will say it's fun. It's very fun to, um, to kind of be incognito and like hear people talk about the beer they just purchased and, you know, not, not being pressured to like say something to, to a brewer, but just to be like, just kind of eavesdrop. Um, I remember when I, I did my first beer, I just started to shoot about a year in or so did my first beer at the pub. I got a chance to do, to do a beer and did a, a big, uh, big double IPA with, uh, with juniper and sage in it and and just just hanging out like once the beer is on tap hanging out at the bar just kind of just kind of eavesdropping seeing people are ordering and hearing that feedback is 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 super fun it's awesome how did sage go in a beer uh, i'm a sage fan in cooking but i very rarely struck it in a beer yeah no it it, it can work well with certain styles i mean it kind of like it can kind of complement the hops for sure um you know that that citrus and that sage can go well together um, and that's kind of what the, what, kind of what the goal was, um, the juniper, a little, little bit of dryness to the beer as well. Um, and it, you know, it was definitely a, uh, a definitely a love or hate beer. If you didn't like Sage, then nope. Not gonna like Imagine, it, if, if, uh, if you did like Sage and, uh, it played pretty well with the hops. So, uh, it, it you know, it did pretty well, but. I can see that being a great beer with food, especially. Yeah, just sort of, you know, really. Exactly. Yeah. It just gives, it gives any kind of meat you're having kind of that extra dimension. Uh, that's that seasoning. It, like, basically it's like just a it's free seasoning. Right. So it's going to give that meat, that meat a lot more flavor than it didn't have it. So. <clears throat> now my sort of question bag is a very mixed bag of things we often talk about in the cool room. And one of those is can design and presentation of the beer. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about design here in the, in the podcast. Um, how much say do you and the rest of the sort of the brew team have in how things get presented and how important do you think that is, you know, to the customer or, and often we get brewers saying, I wish I had more control or I wish, you know, I thought this beer was going to be serious and they put a cartoon character on the front kind of, kind of thing. Oh yeah, that, that happens. I mean, everyone's got an opinion on the packaging and, you know, I, I guess as a, as a brewing group, we don't have a lot of, um, input into that or a lot of uh, say in that, um, which is probably smart, um, but we definitely <laughs> have a lot of opinions on that. Um, and we've definitely definitely influenced some packaging designs in the past. 
Um, I, I will say that like at the shoots, I think what we do well is like when, when people um, see a design and they don't like it, that feedback can oftentimes go through and, and, and actually uh, make change. But as far as like brewers designing labels, uh, you know, very, very rare. There is, a, there is one exception, um, one notable exception. We have a, a German Pilsner we do called King Crispy. And uh, <laughs> the graphic designer came out with a, a logo for it and revealed it. And we're like, eh, I don't know, not so great. Uh, and at some point, someone suggested that we use the tattoo design on our controls engineer's shoulder. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know why that was, how that was chosen, but, but it was. Uh, and so what, what that is, is a, it's a, I should brought a picture of it. It's a toaster. I, say, I reckon this, someone in the Zoom room will be able to hunt this up on Google, surely. Yeah, just, just Google search King Crispy. It's a, it's a toaster oven riding a bicycle with a lasso and a cowboy hat. And that was of course, of course change, change to a crown and a, and a, and a torch. Anyway, uh, there's an example of where, you know, the, the brewing team, the controls team influenced the label for better or worse. <laughs> and was it, was that the final time that they were ever allowed to be involved in that process? Is that really what you're saying? Yeah, right. It hasn't happened since. No, no, it was actually pretty well received. It's kind of a cool label. Um, I definitely, definitely Google that one. I meant to bring a can today, but I, I forgot, but, um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, but to your question about how, how important is it, um, I think, you know, that definitely the design, the label, the package can, can definitely influence purchasing. You know, we've gone through several different um, versions of our, of our packaging, uh, made, made changes, updates over the years. And, you, you know, you definitely see a bump in sales when you change the packaging. Um, but it's, I don't think it's super critical. And the, uh, the last of my sort of formal questions is our traditional cool room question, as we like to say. This is the question that's been confusing guests now for 90 episodes. Uh, and in fact, even in our notes back and forward, Scott, you and I had to discuss what a cool room was because it's a, it's a word we use a lot in Australia, particularly in um, hospitality land. That's the, the part of the pub or the hotel where we store all of our, you know, things that need to be kept cold, beer and, you know, produce vegetables and so forth. And um, particularly in Australia, we have... Uh, also, that's where all the shenanigans happens. That's where all of the kitchen staff, that's where all of the front of house staff go to hide away and do the things they want to get away with when the bosses aren't watching. Um, we often ask, what's the most strange thing you've seen in there? It could apply to a brewery just as well. Uh, one of our favourite, well, Warren, who was on before, once found a shark in his parents' cool room. Uh, the uh, famous one, of course, was when we had the team from Weinstefaner on and they found some unclean beer lines, which to the German brewers was the most shocking thing they'd ever seen in their lives. Uh, how about yourself? What have you seen happening in the back of a cool room that, um, or whatever you might call in a walk, whatever you would call a walk-in fridge, what kinds of shenanigans have you seen happening in those places? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think of... Uh... I think of a hop cooler, I think of a, a cool room. So we have a pretty big, we use a lot of whole leaf hop at the shoots. Uh, we use pellets too, but a lot of whole leaves. So we have a pretty big, a pretty big hop cooler. Um, I really, I guess the two stories I have are, are one, <laughs> this is years ago, we were expanding. Uh, everybody was hanging out in the cool room to warm up because we were getting new tanks installed. 
and we'd have the roof off of the building <laughs> to like like to crane these these gigantic 760 barrel tanks into position and it was like you know middle of winter so it was like 20 out so the whole cellar just <laughs> was flooded with cold air and it was you know people working out there doing other stuff in other parts of the cellar is 25 degrees this is of course this is of course fahrenheit um and the hop coolers kept at 40 so people would go and hang out and have their break in the hop cooler because it was much warmer than their environment but the the better story is um when we we lost an intern uh oh, in, in the hop cooler. um not not as in like he passed away but we temporarily lost this person uh so <laughs> to kind of frame this up our, our hop cooler um uh, has got about it's got about two feet off the ground there's a bunch of a bunch of shelving with rollers on. So you place these bales on top of these rollers. There's different columns with different types of hops in them. And so as you as you gather these whole hops into a bucket um, and that bale runs out, you push the next bale on the rollers up to, to get more hops. Okay. So you have all these bales covering all these rollers. You have about a two foot gap between the, those rollers and the ground, the true ground. And, and that's a space that we think is a good idea to send interns into to clean. <laughs> and, and so, and so we do. And so we will send, we'll send interns down there below the rollers often on, on a little like automotive, like creeper or some, something to get down there. And they'll go through there and they'll like, they'll pull the hops out that have fallen down between the rollers because there's a small space between the rollers. They fall down. So we, we send an intern in there to do that. Are the, are the interns usually sort of 11-year-old boys dressed as English chimney sweeps to go with your English pub theme or something? Or um, No. Um, but, and I've done this myself, I've been down there before, you get, on, you get on the creeper and you just kind of roll through, you get a broom, and you kind of just push hops out. Well, we sent this intern in there to do that. And after like, you know, it's about, about a two-hour job, hour and a half or so. After about three hours like well where you know what happened to him let's check on him and and what had happened is there is it happened to be like so full that day so there's so many bales of hops on top of the rollers that the automatic sensor light um could not see any movement below the bales it couldn't it couldn't see the movement of the intern below the bales and so he was down there collecting hops like a good intern and the lights went out and he didn't know how to get out of the, there's all these different support stands throughout the whole support structure. <laughs> he was like stuck in there with his broom, like just on this creeper, like didn't know where to go and the lights are out and it's 40 degrees Fahrenheit and he's just stuck and he didn't know what to do. And so we eventually found him and pulled him out and rescued him. But um, <laughs> that was, I, think, I think he was cold and kind of over it and uh, definitely a little scared. So did he, did he stay, did he come back the next day? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I must really want a job, right? I had this, um, this visual thing of like some little intern under an avalanche of hops. It's a really good reminder for hop. Victorian listeners that the industrial manslaughter laws have your changed laws just recently. Been passed, yeah. join, join your trade union, people. Join your <laughs> trade union. Right. Yeah, they're getting paid like you know, minimal wage. But uh, but they survived. It had a happy ending, but it was definitely probably terrifying for that person for a while. <laughs> I I love this story when when the person telling the story kind of giggles to themselves before they get into it. You know you're into something good when that happens. Absolutely right. 
I, I mean, I, I should feel bad, but I, I just laugh instead. <laughs> That's, uh, that seems to be the, the going theme when we ask that question. Uh, you remember back to something and you, you have a giggle to yourself. Yeah. Now, we oh, said before, yeah. now this is probably the right time for people to open the squeezy rider. If, like me, they've got a little bit of the, uh, the neon daydream left uh, to sip so they can have the two beers alongside each other. And um, Scott, do you sort of want to explain a little bit more about what you were talking before about the, the different flavours people will get and, I guess, um, why this is a West Coast IPA, even though it's not perhaps got all those traditional things you were talking about before? So why would you argue this is a West Coast, given it doesn't have that big sort of hop burn at the start? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, again, it's, I'd say it's a hybrid. It's like one notch below a West Coast IPA only because the bitterness has been reduced. You know, it's around 35, 40 IBUs. So again, true to style, West Coast is going to be higher than that. Um, but it does have a pretty good uh, big tropical fruit punch kind of aroma to it. Um, very, you know, very impactful. And it does have that, that dry finish, um, which I think helps drinkability, like even in a bigger beer. The alcohol is 7%, so it's pretty, pretty far up there. Um, so I'd say, yeah, the alcohol quality, the, the finish on it and the hop aromatics kind of get that close to the West Coast style. But then we're saying, hey, you know what, if you don't really want to drink a really uh, aggressively bitter West Coast style IPA, then this is kind of a good, uh, you know, more of a gateway beer to that style. Um, yeah, that, I think that's kind of, those are the reasons why. Absolutely. And they're fun to go back, just to go back and forth, back to that hazy and see what flavors can sort of get back to your palate after you've had the West Coast one. It's uh, just doing that while I talk. It's you know, such a contrast of beers. There's a reason why we had this as the fourth beer of the lineup rather than the first. Yeah, it's got a little melon, a little bit of dank in there. Um, it's, it's pretty complex. Now, we've been pretty lucky here. We're going to start to wrap things up soon, but we've, uh, we're going to have time for just a few audience questions. The great thing, as we always say, is if you're in the Zoom room with us, you get to uh, ask your questions directly. Uh, we've got one from Kieran and one from Muggs, and we've probably got room for maybe one or two other questions. Then we're going to close things off here in the recorded session and kick back and relax and just have a chat amongst ourselves as we uh, enjoy the rest of the tasting pack. Um, Kieran, are you there and ready to unmute yourself and ask your question, please, brother? Yes, I am. Um, my question, I guess, was inspired by the little chat that we had in the break. And I was just intrigued to know if you do many collabs and if you are considering at one stage doing those collabs a bit more internationally, maybe Australia, New Zealand, or, or this side of the world. Um, we definitely do collaborations. Um, we've done, I mean, recently I say we've done a couple, um, you know, I'd say local, we've done one over in, um, Salem Morgan's only a few hours away. Uh, it was a, a, a pog beer. Um, our, our bigger one is going to be with uh, Bitburger over in Germany. So we're going to do our, our fresh hop beer this year is going to feature some of their, you know, some of the German hops they have out there. Um, so we'll partner with, with that group to do a collaboration. But I think that's, I mean, again, it's like one of the funnest parts of the industry is to, 
you know, just to have that collaboration and, and the other breweries involved and, and to, to share stuff. I don't, you don't see that in a lot of, a lot of industries, um, but you see it in brewing and it's always fun to, fun to do that. So we've, we've definitely done a lot of collaborations over the year. I mentioned Hair the Dog. We've collaborated with Boulevard Brewing. Um, I, you know, lots of other ones I can't think of right now, but um, yeah, definitely. And then, yeah, for, for breweries out there, that would be, that'd be amazing. Um, good to get in some of those into those NZ Southern Hemisphere hops and, um, and, and link up for sure. In terms of, in terms of the relationships between different breweries around, around Portland, um, is it pretty, pretty, well, speaking of collabs, is it pretty collaborative? Do you guys, do you guys share recipes and ideas to the breweries get together and, and, and talk? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, there's so many breweries, but definitely, like I know I can speak to Bend a little bit. Like we will definitely swap ingredients with other local breweries. If we're, you know, made some mistake in purchasing, whatever, we can, we can get some more malt bags from somebody else or share some yeast or something like that. Um, I think that I think that's pretty cool. So we definitely collaborate. And I think one of the cool things too about the industry is, you know, we'll, we have, um, Master Brewery Association of America, and they have conferences, a spring conference and a fall conference. And that's where you get, you know, upwards of a hundred breweries coming together and they're all bringing their own beer from their breweries and people are giving presentations on various topics and everyone just kind of hangs out, uh, schmoozes, drinks beer and, and just talks and talks shop. And that's kind of where, I, I feel like that's where you can really learn a lot um, and, and progress quickly by going to those and um, just kind of soaking it all in. So again, yeah, it's, it's a unique indoor, in our industry to have that, that luxury, I, I, I feel like. Excellent, we might move on. Muggs, you've got a question in the room. Do you want to unmute yourself? We've got probably spots for two people left if you want to type a question in. Um, otherwise, we're going to move towards wrapping the formal recorded part of this up. Yeah, uh, thanks, David. Um, my question was um, about when you, you're um, more high-end beers, which is the black, black boot, black butte, I think it's called. Yeah. Which is like, like an imperial porter or something like that. Oh, you yeah, you have the so we have black butte porter, which is just a you know, it's not imperial. Um, I think it's five and a half percent alcohol. But he, I so much Matt and Matt and Brown showed me a picture. Yeah. I think it was. Uh, yeah, there it is again. Black Butte, uh, you got twenty-seven. Yeah, that one. 27. yeah. Um, yeah. And so those are that's that's what we do for our for our birthday. So there's yeah. you know you so, know in June we, we have our birthday and um, we'll brew a different a different variant of that every year. Um, so, so it could like, have different barrels. I was going to say what, what what's the um because I like I've tried a couple and and the, the ingredient list or the the, the additions seem to to change every way is there any sort of reasoning like is there any sort of like what what how does that sort of pan out how do how do you come up with that decision what to add to it yeah so right i mean recently it's kind of been like a uh group brainstorm so we'll have we'll just kind of pull we'll pull our team and say hey you know coming up is gonna be our blackbeard anniversary uh you know imperial porter and you know, please, please submit ideas for, for what you want to see in that beer. And, you know, we'll get all kinds of crazy stuff, but um, our, our, our head brewer in charge of our barrel operations will kind of 
work to distill that down to, um, to all the good ideas and, and then, you know, pick a few to try. Um, and we might do, might do bench tops on, on some of the ingredients with, uh, just kind of some, some base black beef porter, um, and kind of narrow it down. So we have, we have several brewing, several groups that will, that will taste beer for, for a variety of reasons, but those kind of come to those groups and kind of get winnowed down to the ultimate, ultimate selection. But it truly is a, it truly is a collaborative effort. It's not just, uh, it's definitely not me. It's not, you know, anybody else just saying this year, it's going to be, you know, coffee nibs and something else. It's, it's definitely like a, a brainstorm type, uh, environment, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Well, like, I, I just remember one of them. I tried probably the first one I tried to had, I think I had cranberries and pomegranate molasses in it or something. And it was like, it was really, really interesting. And like, I've never, like, I just thought, and it was you know amazing beer um i just thought how do you come up with that idea in you know such a, a great big beer with the barrel aging and all that sort of stuff it's just it's um yeah you know quite unique and and then then i tried another one which was completely different it was just like wow you know yeah i mean it's and also you learn a lot from your failures too so like a lot of times there are ideas that they get pretty far in the process and then you know, you, you taste them, you go, no, nah, this is, this is just not, not what we're after. And so that helps, that helps guide those future decisions as well. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think we're, uh, we're getting close to, to wrapping things up here. Um, we may have one more question in the room from Graham. Um, if Graham wants to unmute himself and ask that question, mm. now uh, is your time. Thanks, Travis. And uh, Scott, thanks for a, uh, a great discussion. I was just, um, I, I think that uh, I'm curious to what, I, I, well, I was thinking through what sort of food I'd like to eat with the Neon Daydream. But I was, yeah, curious as to what sort of food you'd like to eat. Would you go more for a sweet, a sweet thing or a sweet dish or a savory dish if you were um, drinking the neon daydream, but thank you, Scott. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Graham. That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, a basic level, uh, I would think about impact and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty hoppy beer, but ultimately it's a pretty, pretty light beer as well. So I think I would, um, I think I might, be cautious to go with a savory dish because it might overwhelm uh, neon. Even though it has a good hop character, there's not much there's not much malt character to link in with any of the you know, the big savory notes. So, uh, you know, off the cuff, I'd say potentially it could be good with fish. Um, you might have that that citrus, those citrus tropical notes kind of link up and and kind of amplify uh, the uh, you know if you're having fish tacos or or a fillet of some sort, but. I would keep it light. I would keep it more of a light, a light dish uh, versus thinking about it as sweet or savory, but just, just overall impact of the dish versus the beer. Um, you know, if, if you mismatch those, if you mismatch the impact of the dish and the, and the beer, you can, you can kind of, you know, overwhelm one or the other and you can enjoy both as much. Thank you. 
Uh, we've got one last question from Jacob in the room, and then we'll uh, we'll start wrapping things up and and uh, throw up all the socials and all the information. Uh, Jacob, if you want to unmute yourself and ask your question, I think it's a pretty good question to finish the uh, the session on. Yeah, it's probably one you get every now and then. But what was the weirdest ingredient you've put into one of your brews, and did you regret it? <laughs> and you can extend this, uh, Scott, to your home brewing days as well, if you want. <laughs> oh man. Um... Weirdest ingredient I put into a beer. Um, well, I, I guess I'll tell, I'll tell the story of a, um, it, the ingredient was kind of weird, but not too weird. It was, it was, uh, I was homebrewing with, homebrewing with a buddy and well, I think it was, I think we overdid the sage on a beer <laughs> and it was like, it was like tasting, it was like, it was like eating a sage sage plant. It was disgusting. Uh, it, was, it was it was just overcooked. Like it was just too much, too intense. And so we're like, well, how do we how do we save this beer? And I had just started to shoot, and I was getting all this free beer, and I had a case of mirror pond in my garage. And so what we did is we basically took the homebrew that was undrinkable, way too intense, sagey, gnarly, and we put it into a into a five gallon corny keg. Uh, put half of it in there, and then we opened up 24 Mirpon bottles and poured them all into the same keg and closed it up and force carved it um, to try and save it. And um, unfortunately, I can tell you that we did not save it. But <laughs> it was a valiant attempt um, at trying to like, so I, I guess the, the moral of the story is that like with, with stuff like that, with, with spices and big ingredients like that, it's, it's so easy to, to overdo it. Um, and that's something that we definitely did on, on that homebrew batch. Um, beyond that, we had, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Um, yeah, sorry. I don't have anything that's, that's too crazy beyond that, but <laughs> that's most things good. have worked out actually. That's, uh, that's, that's a pretty good one. Um, I, uh, I think we're going to wrap things up on the record here. Everyone that's in the zoom room can obviously hang around and enjoy a few more of the beers. Uh, Scott, before we go, can you throw us your social medias so those that listen to the podcast afterwards and are in the Zoom room can look you up and follow you on all the random platforms that we have social media-wise? Facebook.com slash Deschutes Brewery, right? We're on uh, Twitter.com slash Deschutes Beer. So slight difference there. So again, Facebook is uh, slash Deschutes Brewery. Twitter is to shoots beer and then That's, Instagram is the Instagram is to shoots brewery. We will put all those up in the profile of the podcast episode as well. Um, it's amazing how often you hear that um, everyone has a, a multiple different types of wording on their, on their social media. So um, Scott, uh, it's been awesome. I'm guessing it's probably coming on to about 9 p.m. over there at the moment. Uh, would that yeah, be about almost, right? Yeah, it's almost uh, almost nine. You can see it's getting darker. Actually, probably turn the lights on here. Yeah, but. it's um, it's very different than when we uh, when we first started. Um, the cool room. We have a bunch of stuff coming up, and I'm going to try to get through this because I think this is the first time. I've wrapped up with this many events in in the pipeline. So challenge is on. Travis. The challenge, challenge is on. on. Um, for all those that have got the shoots beers left over, as well as beers from your July pack, uh, we'll be online tomorrow from two p.m. Yet again, that'd be nine p.m. 
Scott's time in the US if you want to log back on and join us for some beers. <laughs> um, usual Sunday shenanigans. We uh, drink some beers and, and have a chit-chat. Um, the 5th of August, we've got Little Bang for our virtual meet the brewer. Um, our blind tasting for our August pack will be on the 8th of August. So if you haven't already org- organized to uh, to get your August pack, uh, get onto the Core Room Facebook page and uh, check out the Shopify store and you'll be able to get your pack for August. That also includes the, uh, the Killer Sprocket beers, which is on the 12th of August, and the Golden Hills beers, which is on the 19th of August. Um, Golden Hills we had on early in our lockdown in Melbourne. They were a brewery that was somewhat unheard of, and I think the cool room listeners as a whole have uh, made sure everyone we know is aware of where they are. I'd like to think eventually we get out to one of these breweries and actually sit down and drink the beers in-house rather than doing things via Zoom. But lockdowns may mean that we can't do that. So we'll uh, we'll see how we go on that front. Once again, Scott, thank you very much for joining us, uh, taking your Friday night to come and uh, sit in the call room and have a, have a chat. Much appreciated. Yeah, it's fine. Absolutely. And I, I do want to respond to uh, to one of the questions in the chat. Um, it was, go for it. It was after the intern story about the them getting lost in there and it turning dark. But the question was, do you use the hops that fall on the floor? And uh, <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. Those all go in the trash and, and, and get and go to a farm, actually. So good. Answer. Anyway, it's been, it's been fun. Thank you all for the time. I really appreciate it. Awesome, man. Um, hopefully you enjoy your weekend. I know you've, you've got some stuff going on in Oregon at the moment with the fires and stuff. And uh, stay safe. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Cheers.